Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. This morning we're going to be considering several verses in the book of Ephesians. And I'd like to read beginning with verse 30 of chapter 4 and ending after verse 2 of chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The New Testament uses three figures of speech to describe the church. In the book of 1 Peter 2, the church is described as a building, but no ordinary building is described as a spiritual building. It's made up of spiritual stones. Each stone is actually a person who has been redeemed by God through Christ and has been placed in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. We are an example of such a building, but we are part of something that is monumental in its purpose and ultimately in its impact on the world. We are part of a group of people all over the globe, most of whom aren't like we, ethnically or culturally, but we have the common bond of eternal life through Jesus Christ, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. A second metaphor that is used in the New Testament is that the church is the body of Christ. Similarly to a building of living stones who are part of a priesthood of believers, we who know Christ are part of the body of Christ. Each one of us has at least a spiritual gift. That gift is not for our own pleasure, although there is great joy that comes in exercising one's spiritual gift. Those gifts are for two major purposes, for building up the church of Christ, as the church is equipped by those speaking gifts that are represented in the church, but also, and more importantly, the glorifying of God. The third figure of speech that is used in the New Testament for the church of Jesus Christ is a bride. We are the bride of Christ. The day is soon coming, I hope, and I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, also hope, when Jesus will come and to receive the bride of Christ to himself and establish his kingdom here on earth. This groom, Jesus, loves his bride 
more than we can ever imagine. He went to the cross, as we are told here in verse 2 of chapter 5. Gave Himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God the Father, as a fragrant aroma. Jesus is our groom. As we look at this idea today of our not grieving the Holy Spirit of God, it begs the question, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? This is not the first place in the Bible, by the way, that this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit of God surfaces. We have to go back several centuries to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 63, 10, he speaks about Israel. Now remember who Israel was. Israel was the people of God. And this is what he reports about them. They rebelled against God, and in so doing, they grieved His Holy Spirit. Have you ever stopped to think that the word grieve is a love word? You may say, what are you talking about? A person that doesn't love me is not grieved by my rebellion against him. He may become angry at me because I have rebelled against him and he has some authority over me, but he does not grieve. Our God, the Father, our God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself is acquainted with grief and he died in part for the grief that you and I experience. They love us and they are deeply wounded when we rebel against them. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we rebel against Him. If you'll turn back to chapter 1 for a moment. When you get there, hold your place in verse 30 of chapter 4. And I like to read, read verse 30 and then look at verses 13 and 14 because there is a connection between verse 30 of chapter 4 of Ephesians and verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 of the same epistle. 4.30 of Ephesians, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The grammatical construction here would better render this way. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Last week we looked in the book of 1 Thessalonians at the possibility and the probability that God's children are capable of putting out the Spirit's fire, of quenching the Spirit. We spent many minutes looking at that passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 4. But added to that now, we're looking today at how we grieve the Spirit. Remember, the church in Ephesus was grieving the Spirit. Otherwise, what we read here would not have been necessary. We have the capacity to do that, just like the church at Thessalonica was putting out the Spirit's fire. Both churches had to be confronted with that and make a change, repent of activities and attitudes that contributed to either putting out the Spirit's fire or grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 30, 
do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now let's go to chapter 1, looking at verses 13 and 14. In Him, that would be Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. Let me pause here just a moment. What does it mean to be sealed? We learn what a term means by looking at the way in which it's used outside the New Testament, contemporary to the New Testament. Paul was a man who was conversant with his culture. He was conversant with various aspects of his culture. And he knew his audience well. He knew they would easily understand this concept of something being sealed. When a person of authority or dignity wanted to convey a message to someone somewhere else by a messenger, what that dignity would do, that person would take his seal and he would melt wax and he would seal the communication that was to be delivered. And the messenger would take it and in representing the emperor or some other governmental or military person, that person would be as if he were the emperor. And the authority that was Caesar's or happened to be any other governmental official was represented in that individual. What does this say about you and me? If we have listened to the gospel message, the truth of the work of God in the person of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, was raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures, having been buried. If we know Christ, He has given us, He has authorized us individually and as a church to represent Him to the world. Paul says, about himself and his companion, companions, it would be applicable to us as well. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are the representatives of Christ. Jim Lasalandra in the Middle East is a representative of Jesus Christ. And he is representing the Lord there to a people who have no witness and need the Lord. People like him are in that region and God is multiplying disciples now. Even this moment in that region. We need to pray for such people as Jim. But we have an assignment here as well. There are many people here that God has authorized us to represent Christ to. So when the Bible talks about our being sealed by the Spirit, it carries with it that idea. It also would carry with it if we were to be projected back in to the days of Christ and Paul. It would also, the stamp, the seal would also convey the, not only the authority, but the authenticity of the document, the authenticity of the messenger. When Paul addresses the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, he makes an interesting statement about the church. He says, the people whom I have disciples 
are my letters of recommendation. So when we who know Jesus have been sealed by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God has come to indwell us and we yield to Him, then we are used by Him to minister to other people. Back in this passage of Scripture, we notice where Paul describes in Ephesians 1.13, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. This is a complex sentence, but simply put, what it means is the Holy Spirit is the down payment, if you will, that God has made to guarantee, first of all, our salvation. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit, Romans 8 says, that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. And inside of us, He lets us know we are His based on His work and also based on the work of Him in the Word of God. He has been given as the spirit of promise as a pledge of our inheritance. Do you have any idea how great our inheritance is. We inherit everything that Jesus has inherited. Jesus has given us the privilege of being part of the family of God. We have heaven to look forward to in all the things that pertain to a person who has been made ready and will be with the Lord in heaven. Unbelievable. Time will not permit to explore that with you I'm sure you have some ideas. I leave it up to you to do your own investigation of that. But I want to focus on this word pledge for just a moment in verse 14 of chapter 1. This is a word that was a word which was used many ways to describe the intention of a person who was going to finally and completely fulfill a promise which had been made. For instance... This word was used to describe a man purchasing a ring, giving it to the woman he intends to marry as a promise that he was going to indeed make her his wife. We have a lot of women in the room who are married. And in most cases, not every case, but in most cases, your husband gave you an engagement ring. Now, think about that for a moment, ladies, if you are such a person. What did you think about that ring? Now, we don't want any negative testimonies here, but, <laughs> but you probably thought it was great. I have had the privilege of participating in premarital counseling and marrying scores of people over the course of my being a pastor. And I have watched young ladies who have received a diamond ring, and the diamond was so small, I had to get out my binoculars to figure out what it was, you know. But it's amazing how young ladies, they loved it. Without exception, i never seen a girl or young lady receive a ring like that and be forlorn. There was great excitement. It was representative of something that was to come that was bigger than the ring itself. 
And so we have been given a wedding anticipated event in this pledge. Jesus has made a promise. God the Father has made a promise and be sure that they will fulfill it. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he promised and will he not fulfill it? God never will go back on his word. And this is a great promise. I want to read 14 again. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. What's he talking about, Paul, here? Here's what he's talking about. When I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was sealed in that moment. I became authentic as a child of God. I became a person who had a certain authority in my life. It was not my own authority, but it was given to me for the purpose of representing Christ to my sphere. Wherever I've gone, at whatever age I have found myself in. That's what that means. But I know, as do you, that there has been a struggle in my life to really fully follow Jesus. I'm talking about after I understand what I'm teaching you today. I understood it for the first time almost 50 years ago. But what has happened over those years, there have been moments when I was just flying high spiritually. And I'm not talking about emotions here. I'm talking about fruitfulness. There have been other times when all of a sudden it seemed like the bottom dropped out. And there was no apparent reason for it. And what I mean by the bottom dropping out, there was a cessation of the production of fruit. And it caused me to pause and go back and ask the Lord, Lord, search me, show me. I don't want to be a fruitless believer. And the Lord has shown me. He's shown me there is a time for pruning in a believer's life. Jesus says this, in John 15, verse 2, where he said, I am the true vine. My father is a vine dresser. Every branch that is in me, which does not bear fruit, is taken away. Those which do bear fruit are pruned that they may bear more fruit. Certainly God wants you and me to bear fruit in our Christian lives. And that fruit would be the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so forth but also it would be in the form of people whom the Spirit of God has touched through our witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus. But there are periods sometimes when there is no apparent fruit. Those are hard on us when God has used us and we've enjoyed that and then all of a sudden that's gone. But there are other factors involved. Sometimes I am ignorant of some violation of the will of God based in the Word of God that has led to my grieving the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says in Psalm 38, 18, these are the words of David. He says, my sin troubles me. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, but He's also the great troubler. He is a gentle troubler, but he is a persistent troubler. 
He convicts me of my sin when I commit it. And I have to listen to Him. And I listen to Him really by evaluating what's going on inside my heart. And if I become conscious of a sin, what am I to do with it? If I confess my sin, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to purify me from all unrighteousness. But sometimes I have held on to that sin. Think about David himself. He was troubled by his sin, so troubled in fact. The Bible says, these are his own words in Psalm 32, I could not sleep at night. Do any of you find yourselves not simply troubled, but unable to sleep because you are not adhering to the will of God that the Holy Spirit has shown you? Well, here again, the same solution applies. We confess it, Lord. We ask, Lord, please wipe the slate clean. And in that period of leading up to that second level, we lose our joy. Sometimes we're depressed. The worst depression you can have is spiritual depression. And I mean by that, where you know what you should be doing in relationship to God and you stiff arm God because you're enjoying your sin at the moment more than you are missing the joy of the Lord in your life. But David says in Psalm 51, when he finally was confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he did not hesitate. He said after Nathan had drawn a picture, it was a parable he gave him, and he said, you're the man, David. And what did David say? I am the man, and he repented of his sin. In Psalm 51, among other things which he says, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. David, the man after God's own heart, wrestled with his walk with the Lord. And he tried to cover it up. But there's no covering up such behavior from the Holy Spirit of God, is there? And when we are nagged, I use the word advisedly, when we are nagged, gnawed upon by the voice of the Holy Spirit, there's one and only one way to clear the air and clear our hearts, and that is to confess our sin to the Lord. And in verse 14, the Bible talks about that we will have this inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. That's talking about when Christ comes again. We know the Bible says when we see Him, we will be like Him. We'll be like Him in our spirit. No more cloudiness, no more murkiness in our spirit, no more conflict within. The Holy Spirit will win the battle against our own selfish flesh. He will win it. But sometimes it feels like it's not going to be won in this life. Well, that's a mistake for you and me to think that way because God is working in our lives and we need to respond to Him. If we have to ask forgiveness a hundred times for some bad attitude, do it a hundred and a hundred and one if need be. Keep on coming before the Lord in that kind of situation. Our souls will be perfected. Our minds, our wills, our emotions, and our bodies will be glorified they're going to be just like Christ's resurrection body. Let's go back now and look in the remaining moments at 
attitudes we must throw overboard in our lives to keep from grieving the Spirit, and then some actions we are to take. Verse 31 of chapter 4 lists several attitudes which need to be done away with. Let all bitterness be put away from you. All bitterness. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, or 13 and 14, 13 and 14 are the actual verses. The writer of Hebrews talks about that we are to pursue peace with all men and not allow a root of bitterness to come up in our lives. We've had blessed rain, haven't we? I love it when it rains here. But I was reminded there is a price to pay for the rain. I went out into my front yard. I don't have a grassed yard. I have rocks. But weeds began to pop up about two weeks ago. And I'm bending over, and it, it takes me a hard time to get up now. It's a hard time getting up sometimes. But I'm pulling these weeds out. And if I just yank on them, I'm going to leave some roots in the ground, and they're going to come back again. They'll be more difficult when they come back again. The root of bitterness is something that we will not only corrupt you, the Bible says, but it'll corrupt everyone around you. And what does this idea of bitterness convey? This is what it means. Long-standing resentment. Holding on to a grudge and refusing to let it go. Every time you think of a person who has offended you, it just makes you mad as a wet hen to think about that person. You might even in your mind think about how you could get even with that person in your life. Nobody's ever had that experience except me, I'm sure, right? But what you do, you do damage to your own soul. You do damage to all those around you, your family members. They're poisoned by it. But you do damage to God Himself. You grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We are to be done with that kind of thinking. Every one of us who knows Jesus, if we don't know how to forget wrongs done to us, we need to beg the Lord, Lord, show me how to do this. Please, Lord, take this tendency of being a bitter person away from me. The word wrath it's simple to understand. It would be illustrated, perhaps, if you had a pile of dried grass and you lit a match to it. The pile was not large. It would put up a quick flame, but it would die out as quickly. This is the idea. It's like volcanic eruption of temper. Boom! There it goes. He's done it again. And then the person who's had this volcanic expression forgets about it, but leaves a lot of destruction behind in his wake. We are not to do that kind of thing. If you have that kind of temper problem, you say, well, it's just who I am. I'll say to you, but it's not whom you are intended to be in Christ. And he indwells you. If you know Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, all of those things. Those things help me and you too to overcome just erupting in anger. The next word is 
translated simply anger. And this is simmering anger. This is the kind of anger I have wrestled with more than the others represented here in this list. The, the idea, I just kind of, you know, I just let it simmer. Eventually it explodes, but it just simmers there. Sometimes it has simmered there for days, weeks, months, maybe even years. We need to be done with that because in so doing, we make it possible for us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do you love God? If you love the Lord, you don't want to make Him grieved. Not for fear of what it will be in terms of consequences for you, but because you love Him. You understand who He is. Look at the next word. Clamor. This is just talking loudly. I've had times in my marriage where I would be speaking to my wife and she said, don't yell at me. I said, I'm not yelling at you, you know. But I was evidently for her. It's, it's the one who hears what we say that creates that kind of problem. Look at the next thing, slander. Do you know the word devil in the New Testament? Diabolos means slanderer. That's what it means. So when we slander people, we say things behind their backs that we would never say to their faces. We are slandering them. We're to be on the ready to put those things away, along with all malice. This is intentional menace, as we say where I came from. I don't even know there's such a word. Menace is probably what the word is. Menace. You just got to you're full of meanness. And all these other things are expressions. And maybe this is a word that captures all of them and bundles them together. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Be put away. We must be intentional about that. Now let's look at what we are to express. Verse 32. And this has to do with forgiveness as we get our, make our way there. Be kind to one another. This word sounds very much in the original language like the word for Christ. Christos is the Greek word for Christ. You hear Christ in that. But this word is Christos. And this became a word that was very often used among the first generation of believers because of its closeness in the way it's written and read. But not simply that. More importantly, this is who Jesus is. He is kind, isn't he? If there's anything we could say about Jesus, he was kind. He was not one to mince words. He would call a sin a sin, and he would call people to repentance. But even in that, there was a certain gentleness. We see this story that we read. It's a parable out of Matthew 18 about two servants of a wealthy man. One owed $10 million is what this amount of thousands of talents come to if you'll do your research. $10 million, can you believe that? That was Jesus' use of hyperbole, actually, to make his point. And this guy begs that his owner will not throw him into jail. And the owner, who's representative of God, says, okay, he has mercy on him, doesn't he? And he turns right around and he finds a fellow servant and that servant owes him a hundred denarii. 
one denarii was the equivalent of one day's work. For somebody who is a servant like these men were servants, that's a lot of money. And so he's going to throw him into prison. He begs, same thing, he says the exact same words, have patience with me, I will pay you back. But he has him thrown into the poorhouse. And then other servants who were in the service of this master tattle on him and good, good for them. And what does he do? He sends for this man and he throws him away. And he says, Jesus in interpreting the parable, he says, if you don't forgive others, you will be like this man. Tortured is what he said. If we hold anything against our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are guilty of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, we are not doing what God would have us to do. And we are grieving the Spirit of God. And God will take up for you. If you are mistreated, Believe me, God will watch over you. He goes on to say, be tenderhearted. This means really to be merciful. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, 36, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Forgiving each other. This word forgiving actually means be gracious to one another. The word grace is such a beautiful word to understand, but it's even more important to experience it in our lives. We give grace to people when they forgive us. If someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness, don't say, well, I'll think about it. What if God had said that? I'll think about it. He thought about it before you ever were born. And rather than hatching a plan to make life miserable for you and me, what he did, he had a plan of salvation and He gave His only begotten Son who died in our place so that if we trust in Him, we have eternal life. Quite a contrast, isn't it? Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. What are we to do? We're to expel all those things which are listed in verse 31 of Ephesians 4. And then positively, we are to express forgiveness to others, to have mercy on them, not to stand in judgment of those people. I'm going to close with a story that was brought to my attention. I had heard it when it first happened in 2016. It occurred in Oklahoma City a dear sister in Christ by the name of Ingrid was driving three of her five children, minding her own business in downtown Oklahoma City, busy street. And all of a sudden, a woman named Susan Donaldson was driving in the opposite direction. She swerved perhaps to miss a car in front of her because she was going 80 miles an hour in downtown Oklahoma City and had her dog in her lap. I would advise you not to drive with your dog in your lap. And she came across into the oncoming traffic, head-on collision. 
with Ingrid Williams' car. Killed her. The accident did. The three children in the car remarkably escaped without any major injury. The big injury was the loss of their dear mother. The husband of Ingrid and the father of these three children and two others was, is named Monty Williams. He's the head basketball coach now of the Phoenix Suns. They almost won the NBA championship earlier this month. He was assistant coach then. And, of course, he was grieved at the loss of his dear wife. If you have time, I had, if we had had time today, I was going to show a clip, it's more powerful than anything I could ever say, of his speaking at his wife's funeral. He talked about how, he, he quoted right off the bat, Psalm 73.1, which says, God is good. And he said, our God is good. My wife, Ingrid, was a devoted follower of Jesus. And she extolled the goodness of God. And I'm here to echo that. My family and I are grateful for your presence. We know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And then he said, as he concluded his seven-minute talk to the people who had come from all over the country, he said this, let us not forget there is another family which has suffered loss today. The Donaldson family. And he was saying, let's pray for them. We've suffered great loss, but so have they. Look, we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves, individually. But we are important within the micro of that bigger picture. God thinks of us and loves us individually, but He wants you and me to be people who carry the banner of forgiveness forward in our lives, recognizing if we refuse, we will suffer immensely. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper now, and I want the deacons to come and join me here. And if you have a hymnal, you'll find one hopefully either under the chair in which you're sitting or in front of you. I'm going to invite you to turn to the reading 22 in the back of your hymnal. It's on page 859. And if anything, the Lord's Supper is about forgiveness, isn't it? the forgiveness of God. And I'm going to ask you just to take a moment before we observe the Lord's Supper. Bow your head. And if you are holding anything against anyone else, ask forgiveness now. Beg forgiveness of God. If you need to make something right with someone whom you have offended and you know you've offended, Make a pledge to the Lord. Lord, I'm going to do that. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. Help me to forgive her or him. In Jesus' name.